Would you please turn in your Bible to 1 Peter, 1 Peter, as we are nearing the end of Peter's little book, little letter. Uh, we're going to first read a few verses from chapter 1, and then we're going to go to chapter 5. 1 Peter, we'll begin reading at verse, uh, chapter 1. going to read the, um, between verses 3 and 9, chapter 1, and then we're going to go to chapter 5. So let's, and I'm just reading chapter 1 because I, it helps us to see there's a bookend to this letter. Uh, the themes um, are reoccurring of confidence uh, in the midst of trials because of God's love for us. And so let's give our attention to that. First Peter chapter 1, let's begin at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. And then if we go to chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 6, and this morning looking at verses 10 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our heads a moment. God in heaven, you are the Lord of this word, the author, and you intend it for good, and I pray that today it would fall like fresh rain upon thirsty souls, and that it would give a supernatural comfort and peace and power as we hear again of your great love for us and your grace towards us in Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. This past week, um, a quote by Robert E. Lee came to mind. Someone has shared it with me several years ago, and I found it to be very uh, helpful. Um, and the counsel is this. Never take counsel from your fears. Never take counsel from your fears. 
The, um, the fact is, is that we often take counsel from our fears. We maybe plan a certain thing, and then as we think about it, we start seeing all the things that could go wrong, the dangers maybe that are uh, implicit, um, the difficulty that might be there, and we just back away. Let me ask you, what would you attempt in your life if you knew with absolute 100% certainty that you would have nothing but success? Complete, glorious, full success. What would you attempt? Maybe you would start a new business or a new career. Uh, maybe you would ask out the girl that you've been secretly dreaming about for the last two years. Uh, maybe you would just make another attempt at a really difficult relationship. If you knew without a shadow of a doubt that you were going to succeed, what would you attempt? You see, an, an often forgotten but irrefutable fact is that God has created us to run on the jet fuel of hope. We don't work without hope. We don't function without assurance. Nothing empowers people. And this is not some, some uh, happy talk from a motivational speaker. This is the word of God. Nothing empowers those made in the image of God more than the assurance of success, which we call hope. And nothing cripples a soul more than despair, more than hopelessness. I've been reading some fascinating reviews this past week of a new book that's just come out. I've ordered it. I, I think it's going to be here tomorrow. Uh, it's called Hillbilly Elegy. Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, a memoir of, family, of a family in culture in crisis. He writes about the poor white uh, community that he grew up in, and he catalogs from firsthand experience the devastation that's taken place in uh, white, poor communities, the failed marriages, the chaos in homes, rampant drug use, uh, suicide is, is ever-increasing, becoming the number one cause of death in that, uh, in that community. And the question he asks is, why do the people that I know, the people that I love, why do they continue to make such devastating and destructive choices when they know what the outcome is going to be? And his answer is, is that there's this crippling belief that nothing will change, nothing can change, the deck is stacked against them, and there's nothing they can do about it. And so people ask J.D. Vance, well, how did you get out of that? He's a Yale graduate. He's a writer living, I believe, in New York. How did you get out of it? And his answer is uh, he got out of that community. He went to the Marine Corps, and the Marine Corps taught him to believe that his future could be different than his past. And his point is that hope makes all the difference, that almost any circumstance, uh, no matter how debilitating, can be does not need to be an obstacle to a fruitful life, a joyful life, if there is hope for a better future. And that's what Peter wants his readers to know. They are facing a difficult future. But he wants them to know that if they have this deep, unmistakable, uh, unshakable confidence that the gospel gives, they are going to be held fast. They're going to be kept by the power of God. So in, in, in chapter 1, verse 3 through 6, that God's power is going to guard you. Uh, he has caused you to be born again, and what he has begun, he's going to complete. Ch chapter 1, verse 13, set your hope 
fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 5 verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then he caps it off with this wonderful two verses here at the end of his letter. Uh, why this great concern to assure them, to give them confidence? Because it's going to be, there's going to be difficulties. Notice he says in our text, after you have suffered for a little while. After you've suffered for a little while. Remember, Peter is convinced that suffering isn't strange. It's not uh, the evidence that something's gone wrong. It's the calling. It's normal. It doesn't mean it's easy. And suffering is ripe with temptation. A temptation to fear, a temptation to self-protect, temptation to deny Christ. Peter knows what he's talking about. He knows the powerful temptations that come from fear. But he also knows that nothing strengthens, emboldens, and empowers a Christian like the confidence that we cannot lose, that we have ultimate, everlasting victory. And that's what Peter is battling to give his readers. Absolute confidence in a great future. The knowledge, the conviction that the deck is stacked for us, divinely stacked for us and cannot be unstacked. That our future is not in the hands of fate, it's not in the hands of our circumstances, it's in the firm control of God. God's purpose and promise and power. But you see, that will, those will just be words, a religious idea, unless you are convinced of them. Unless you're convinced that it's true for you. We have to be persuaded. And we have to be persuaded in a way that actually does drive out fear. We have to be convinced in a way that actually uh, gives us the ability to cast anxiety on Christ. and, And to believe it in a way that peace truly does more and more begin to reign. And joy more and more begins to flood in. Christians ought to be conspicuous in their confidence, their optimism for how this is all going to end up. We ought to be conspicuous precisely because we live in an age that is conspicuous in its anxiety. People are running every direction looking for security. And they seek it in all sorts of products, right? Insurance policies, financial security uh, promises, home security systems. Um, we're looking for security, security, security. Why, why all the fear? Well, because people sense the foundations are shaking. I don't care what side of the political aisle you're on. I don't think there was much in the last, uh, the, these recent conventions that would give you a great confidence. If you're looking into the world, right, for security, for confidence, you're not going to find it. But you see, for the believer, we ought to be conspicuous in our confidence. The anchor holds. The purposes of God define our future, and they stand. The promises remain true. The future is exceedingly bright. How can we be certain? Well, Peter gives us four things. We're going to look at them this morning. Four things. God's posture, uh, God's purpose, God's promise, and God's power. First of all, God's posture. Notice how Peter refers to God. The God of all grace. 
the God of all grace. Grace is God's joyful commitment to show abounding goodness and favor to people, sinners, who don't deserve it, who in fact deserve the opposite. Grace is God's joyful commitment to show abounding favor to sinners who don't deserve it, but actually deserve the opposite. If, if you wanted to kind of figure out what made the apostles tick, what made the New Testament church sort of work, what, what is the secret to their willingness to suffer and their ability to endure and their joy even in the midst of great trials? This is the secret. They were convinced that God was for them a God of all grace. Grace speaks of God's disposition. They believe that God's disposition was gracious. And so the classic apostolic greeting is what? Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't just a pleasant beginning. They were convinced it was true. Grace is at the heart of God's self-revelation. So when Moses says in Exodus 34, show me your glory, God comes and says his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. It's the first thing he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, a Bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And you'll find that uh, repeated in various places throughout the scriptures. Grace is at, at, at the center of who God is. He is thrice holy. And so the angels worship him without ceasing. But his holiness, you see, he's found a way to be perfectly holy and yet gracious towards sinners. His posture, his stance is towards sinners, towards his children. This means that you see that his every purpose for you is good. Every motive towards you is gracious. There's nothing that he does to you or wills for you that is not motivated by, saturated with, and in the pursuit of grace. He's the God of all grace, all the time. It is not a disposition that God has toward you when you're getting it right, when you're doing well. It's his constant stance, his constant posture. There's no other way to understand what we read in the pages of scripture. Look at the saints of old. Why does Abraham get blessed with blessing upon blessing? There's nothing about Abraham when you read that he's living in the Ur of Chaldeans. Nothing about the man that suggests that he is an a unnaturally good man. He's just, he's just a guy living like other people, probably engaged in some sort of syncretistic worship. And yet God gives grace upon grace upon grace. Becomes a friend of Abraham. Well, if, And if that's surprising, think about his awful grandson, Jacob. A conniver, a schemer, a liar. Why does Jacob prosper? Why does Jacob get the rights of the firstborn by lying about it? Well, because God determined that he would get the rights of the firstborn. 
Why does Jacob get the girl of his dreams? Why does Jacob get 12 sons? Why does Jacob get riches and divine favor? How come Jacob doesn't get what he deserves when Esau comes back to meet him? Why does he just get all this good all these good things, he, he gets renamed and claimed by God. Well, it's because, you see, God's posture towards Jacob was always gracious. Always gracious. And the same is true for every one of his children. Now, we are cynics when it comes to this. We have a hard time believing this. We think that God is often, his stance towards us, I think we often believe that he's disappointed, he's frustrated, maybe even he's angry. Or he's just sort of removed. And, and we need to acknowledge that God will have fatherly displeasure. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 11. Even those who've been justified truly are God's people. They will experience God's fatherly displeasure. But God's fatherly displeasure is gracious displeasure. It's gracious displeasure because its intent, you see, is to convict you of your sin, to warn you of where you're going, to draw you back, to give you the grace to repent, and in repentance then once again to throw open the floodgates of mercy. His, his displeasure is gracious. So that means there's nothing, for those who belong to God, there is nothing in God for you, but grace. You can, no matter how far into God you go, you will always find grace. Now that's, that's critical for our assurance. That's critical for comfort in the face of our sin. Because we do sin. We sin awfully. It's critical for our confidence in the face of trial. So that we know that this is not God being against me. It's critical, critical for, being, for our calm in the face of death. What will happen after I die? Well, I'm going to meet the God who's been gracious to me all my life. Paul writes, if God before us, who can be against us? That's irrefutable logic. If God is for you, if God's taking your side, uh, who can be against you? And the answer, of course, is nobody can be against you. But that irrefutable logic will have no power in your life if you don't believe it. You have to be convinced it's true that God is for you, Beg says this, until we have discovered God as <clears throat> the God of all grace, we have not discovered God. We don't really know him. So what will help us with that? What will give us that confidence? What would, what would help you be absolutely convinced that God was not dealing with you according to how well you're doing or how poorly you're doing? What would, what would help break that link in your mind that, that between God's disposition and your behavior? Well, what if God had, before you were even born, decided to be gracious to you? What if God's decision to be gracious to you was made before you had done anything good or evil? That, that you realize that God's, um, his commitment was established utterly regardless of your behavior, and it was never connected to it. Because that's exactly what Peter says. The God of all grace has determined to give you grace. He's called you to his eternal glory in Jesus Christ. And here we have um, th this wonderful truth that if you're a Christian, if you're truly a Christian, it is, it is because 
God made a decision before the foundation of the world to love you and be gracious to you all the time, all the way down, simply because he wanted to. It has nothing, nothing to do with your behavior. The root of our salvation is the eternal reality creating call of God. Isn't that amazing? The reality creating call of God. By that I mean that God's call is his determined declaration which actually brings into being that which he desires. So when he calls the universe into existence, let there be light. There must be what God desires, and there was light. When he calls Israel out of Egypt, out of Egypt I have called my son, then Israel comes out by the mighty hand of God. When Jesus calls to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. It is a reality-creating call. Jesus calls a dead man out of the clutches of the tomb, and Lazarus, a living man, comes out. Whatever, you see, God calls happens precisely because of, and for no other reason, than the fact that God called it. And, and that's why you're a Christian today. You're not a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home. Fundamentally, if you're a Christian, it's not because you, you had the good sense to make a good decision at some point. If you are a Christian, fundamentally, it's because God determined to call you. And that is the, the, the reality-creating act of God. So, Romans 8, 28. We know that the, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who what? Are called according to his purpose. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. There is no break in that chain. Every link holds. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, but brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus. So you see, in your day-to-day -day life, you say, why would God be gracious to me today? What confidence could I have that God would be all grace to me today? And an and answer would be because he determined to be so from eternity, before the earth existed, before you were born. God determined to call you to Jesus and give you eternal glory in Jesus just because he wanted to just because he wanted to. Which means, you see, that the tapestry of your life and your eternal future is not being woven by genetics, not by nature, not by nurture, not by circumstances, not by opportunities seized or lost, not by successes or failures, not by flaws or strengths. The fundamental tapestry of your life is being woven by the predestining hand of God and according to the gracious intent of God. Romans 9.15 I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God 
who has mercy. It doesn't mean that their human will and exertion have no place in our Christian life. We need to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to confess our sin. We need to believe in his grace. We need to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But our eternal future, our eternal destiny does not depend on human will or exertion. What Paul means is that all our willing and all our striving is a fruit of God's prior eternal decree. Those whom he has called will come to faith. They will confess their sin. They will strive for holiness. They will be one day ushered into the glory of Jesus Christ because he called them. Because he called them. I hope you're starting to get the sense that you're on this train, this divine train that God has placed you on if you're a Christian. And that train has a destination, the fruit of this call to his eternal glory in Christ. You see, God has a purpose when he called you. He had a, he had a goal in mind. And that purpose was to give you to Jesus and then bring you into eternal glory in Christ. The, the specific purpose of God for you, flowing from his gracious posture towards you, is to present you one day before the glory of his presence without fault and with great joy. That's his purpose. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now, I'm just, I beg you, give your attention to this. You maybe have had a, a, a difficult week. You maybe have a difficult week coming up. There might be worries and fears and heartache crowding your mind right now. Peter and the Holy Spirit want you to get that your life, your joy, your peace must be and can only be rooted here. That God intends, you see, this truth to break into the specific reality of the life that you're living today. Whether you're, in, you're caught in a besetting sin, and you simply don't have the repentance right now to break free from it. But you know you're in the wrong. You know you need to change. You feel powerless to change. This is the power that breaks you free. Whatever the circumstance of your life. To be a Christian is to be someone that God has purposed to one day robe you with a glorified mind and a perfected body and to bring you into the unspeakable bliss of living forever in the refulgent glory of his presence, world without end. And you can say, yes, but pastor, my, my sins are so many. I know they are. My faith is so weak. I, I get it. The trials and circumstances of life are so difficult right now. I'm sure that they are. 
And I have no confidence in my ability to stand in the day of trial. Right now, I'm not even interested in standing. In the, I'm, just, I'm just spiritually apathetic and numb. So what if I don't endure? What if I fall away? Well, you see, this glorious purpose is sealed with the promise that God himself will accomplish this in our life. That's God's promise. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God has undertaken the work from beginning to end that he will bring all those who he has called in Christ, he will bring all of them into the presence of Christ, every single last one. He promises to do a work in us. The work that he's begun, he's going to carry on to completion. And Peter piles up four very closely related words to give us a sense of God's deep commitment to bring us all the way home. God himself will restore. It's a it's word used for mending nets, for resetting a bone, for making something that was broken whole and useful again. And the life of every one of God's children needs this work. Our lives are ruined and broken by the fall, ruined by sin, original and actual. And even after we've come to faith, right, we, we know the answers. We believe in Jesus Christ. We experience profound brokenness in our lives, in our relationships, because of sin, our sin and other people's sin. But you see, God is a God who's committed to restoring. No sin is too great for his restorative power. No rip or tear in the fabric of your life or relationships is too great for the tender, mending mercies of God. He has committed to repairing, restoring Peter's experiences in his own life. I mean, Peter, the uber disciple, had committed the, the most awful sin, calling God to, to damn him if he knew Jesus. And yet Jesus had come and mended his life. And that doesn't mean that he was forever fixed. I mean, he, he stumbled awfully again in uh, where Paul has to write in his letters to the Galatians. I had to rebuke Peter to his face because his life was not in keeping with the gospel. Here's the head of the church being publicly rebuked for denying the gospel with his life. He said one thing, he lived another thing. You don't want to be there. That's failure. That's epic failure. And yet here's Peter writing a letter to the church. God is able to mend. God's able to restore. You need to know that in your life. That God's not just able, he's committed. Committed. He himself will. He will confirm and complete, which means to shore up and support. We get weak, we get wobbly, we, we, we get lost. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So when, when Peter uh, is, is, is facing the greatest temptation of his life and he doesn't even know it, Jesus comes and says, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you so that you will not fall, meaning you will not fall away. And that everything that happened from that point forward to be according to God's the sovereign purpose for Peter's benefit. He will confirm. He will complete. He will shore up your weakness. He will strengthen you. Romans 16, 25, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. He's able to establish you, which is to give you a foundation, to ground you, root you, 
make you firm, unshakable, right? This is the story Jesus told of the two builders, one who builds on rock and one who builds on sand, and everything is going great until the floods come. The trial comes, and the one house is swept away, and the other house stands. Why? Because one was built on a foundation. And the question is, are you built on the foundation? That's what Jesus is pressing. What's the foundation? The foundation is Jesus Christ. His person, his atoning work, his victorious resurrection, all that he's accomplished for you. I just listed quickly 10 things that Jesus did for me. He claimed me before the foundation of the world. He came for me in the fullness of time. He obeyed for me when I've never obeyed perfectly a day in my life. He atoned for my sin. He satisfied justice for my sin. He propitiated the wrath of God, turning it aside by taking it on himself. He reconciled me to the Father, giving, bringing peace where there had only been animosity. He justified me by his own righteousness imputed to me. He allowed me to be adopted as the child of the Father. He filled me with the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. He is sanctifying me, uh, though painfully slowly at times, and he promises to glorify me. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, has been laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more could he say than this gospel? What more could he say? Where would you find a flaw in the gospel story? Where would you find one weak area that might allow you to fall through? It doesn't exist. And it doesn't exist because God is the God of all power. To him be the dominion forever and ever. The Greek word translated here could be... uh, Translated as power or might. You see, what, what, what gives you the confidence that, that, that God is able to do this? We've, we've heard that he's willing. He's a God of all grace. His disposition is towards you. We, we, we've heard that he's done things in the past. He's, he's called you. He's purposed to do this thing. But, but what, what if he can't hold on? What, what if something comes between you and, the, and, and, and God? And, and Peter says, it's not possible. Uh, he's, he's able to guard you and keep you and present you perfected on that last day. You see, Paul, Peter just says, all power belongs to God. There's no power outside of the, the domain of God. Even the devil's power must bend to the ultimate plan and purpose of God for you. It's, it's interesting, the word be, the verb here, is not in the Greek. Peter just says, to him, dominion. To him, power. It's all his. Forever. Forever and ever. Got to be convinced of it. Are you convinced that your God is mighty to save? Supremely Mighty? All power is his. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able, able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. He's able. And that means that there is no sin too great for his grace to cure. There's no weakness 
so profound that he cannot restore and strengthen. There's no experience of suffering so awful that will be able to rob you of the destiny God eternally prepared for you. Romans 8, shall tribulation separate you from God? How about distress? What about persecution? Can you stand even then when men come and threaten your life? How about famine? When you see people you love, maybe children, dying because there's not enough to eat. Or nakedness, you're so, you're so poor, you have nothing to wear. Or danger, or sword. Will they be able to separate you from the love of God? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So what shall we say to all this? We need to say what Peter says. Amen. Amen. So be it. That's what he says. So be it. That's his response. It's, you see, it's, it's a heartfelt assent to. It's, it's a marrow of your bones confidence in. It's your agreeing with, your delight in these things. The, the ultimate, you see, response of a believer to this glorious salvation of God is to acquiesce to it. Submit to it. Surrender to it. Assent to it. Receive it. Amen. Amen. So be it, Lord. May it be unto your servant as you have appointed. Amen. Let it be. To the praise of your glorious grace, save this wretched sinner. Make this broken man. Make this sinful woman a display of your grace, a treasure of your mercy. As you have appointed. Amen. So be it. Can you say amen to this? Is this a response of your heart? Are you willing simply to submit to it? Put away the questions, put away the doubts, the fears, and to submit acquiesce to the sovereign grace and love of God. And friend, if, if, you, if you this morning can honestly say, I don't, I don't know that Jesus that way. This message does not mean that, that you are cut out. This is a day of grace. This God is inviting you today. You're not here by accident. He's inviting you today to respond in faith to this gospel. Because this gospel is able to save you this gospel is able to give you a repentant, broken heart. And if you reject this gospel, then the word has a word for you. How will you escape if you ignore so great a salvation? What's your, going to, what's your response going to be? And what will you attempt then? If your response is amen, so be it, just as I am. 
I come. What will you attempt now, knowing that this is true, knowing that you cannot fail? What will, you, what will be different about tomorrow? If this is the foundation you're standing on, if this is the reality that you live in, if that is the future that you are destined for by the purpose and promise and power of God, then what will be different? Let me give you some suggestions. Live in joy. Live in joy. The world complains. Those who don't know God argue and bitter and uh, argue and grumble and are bitter. Not those who know this. Not when it's functioning. Be thankful every day. Rest in peace. Yes, you are a failure in a thousand ways and more than you know. But in eternity past, the living God loved you and has promised to love you in eternity to come. And everything that needs to happen between then and then, he will do. Rest in it. Love people with abandon. It's not about you anymore, is it? Love people who are broken. Love people who are hard to love. Love them with abandon. Forgive with an eager gladness. Yes, you've been sinned against. Yes, it hurts. But if you've been loved like this, if God is a God of all grace to you, then you you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to lose. You can be amazingly gracious to other people. Forgive with eager gladness. Trust the Lord with your whole being. Suffer with patience. It's for a little while. And it's light and momentary in light of what is yet to come. And then plan for a glorious future. Your best days are absolutely yet to come. God has promised it. Amen. Well, Father in heaven, your gospel is astonishing. It's an amazing truth that you have loved us and claimed us before we had done anything good or evil, that your grace to us is not rooted in our behavior, it's rooted in your own sovereign will and desire. It's astonishing to think that you sent Jesus knowing who we were and what we were, and you delighted to do so. It was your pleasure to crush your son in order to rescue us. Father, I pray that the glory of the gospel will press out of our lives all that is unworthy. I pray, Lord, that the joy and the peace and the grace that belongs to those who are in Christ would be a wind beneath our wings. It would convict us where we need to be convicted. It would, it would exalt us. And transform us because it's true. And Lord, for those who don't know this Jesus today, maybe they have a form of religion but have no sense of its power. Maybe this is the first time the gospel really made sense by your Holy Spirit. Lord, give the grace to confess sin, 
to turn from a dead religion. To turn from reliance on self-righteousness or good intentions. And that we would come with all of our sin, all of our failures, all of our neediness, all of the reasons that you could justly condemn us and we would come to a God of all grace and have the ability to receive grace. May, be, may Jesus Christ be praised. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And God's people said, amen.